0: The Christmas season, I think we all carry uh, a lot of things with us wherever we go. We carry the the joy and the excitement, uh, the season, when we plan parties, uh, we attend parties, we give gifts, we get together with friends and family, and we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And some of us also carry some difficult things. Some like stress and worry, or maybe we're carrying some scars and and past wounds. And honestly, some of us maybe even experience this at Thanksgiving around a table where there's somebody who's no longer there, the emptiness of grief that we're carrying this season. Knowing this, I'm almost certain that none of you in particular want to sit down necessarily and read the lineage of Jesus in Matthew, name after name of people you don't know it's like the worst nightmare of a family get-together at Thanksgiving when you got 100 people there and only uh, like 10 of them you know their names, right? Yet at a deeper glance, Jesus' lineage has some profound things to say to us about who God is, who we are, and most importantly, eventually, it leads us to knowing when we follow God, no matter what we're carrying, whether it's good or bad or joyful or hard, in the middle of that, we carry hope. And we don't bear the weight of the world. We don't bear the weight of having to work up that hope all on our own. Because Jesus came, God came as Jesus, and because of what Jesus did, He's the one who carried the weight of the world for us. And we can just look to Him and receive hope throughout this season. So today we're going to start, actually, by looking at that uh, lineage of Jesus, by a couple of ancestors from Jesus' uh, ancestry, and and the story that we're going to look at today. At first glance, I'll just be honest. It's kind of perplexing and disgusting. Just what you wanted right after Thanksgiving, right? It's the story of Judah and Tamar. So to set up the context of the story, Judah and his brothers have just finished selling their brother Joseph into slavery, deceiving their dad, saying he was killed and eaten by wild animals. And Judah was instrumental in instigating that treachery on his own brother. A little while later in Genesis 38, we see Judah take a trip to see a good friend and While he's there, he sees this Canaanite woman and decides to marry her. Now Judah and that wife he marries eventually have three sons named Er, Onan, and Shelah. When Er was grown, Judah arranged a marriage for his son to Tamar, the other character that we talked about in the lineage of Judah and Tamar, a Canaanite woman. Let's pick the text up there. I just want to read the long text. We're going to go back and examine it here. So, but Aaron, Judas' firstborn, it says, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Oh, happy, isn't it? Then Judas said to Onan, Go to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother in law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. It's getting better, right? And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Then he put him to death also. Still better, right? Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite, or however you say that. And and when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was growing, growing up, and she had not yet been given to him in marriage." When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. It gets even better, right? For she covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. So he did not know, but he did not know that he, she was the daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet." and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, went into her, and she conceived by him. It just keeps getting better, right? Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So the story goes on, and Judah sends the goat that he promised back to what the woman he thought was a cult prostitute, but he can't find her, so Judah decides to let it slide because he's embarrassed because of what he gave away in the pledge to her. Because in that day, what he gave away in the pledge would be like you giving your wallet, your social security number, and your credit card to somebody. So verse 24 about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out, let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of the labor had come, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out the hand, and the midwife tied a scarlet thread on the hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. And therefore his name was called Perez. Now, this is just a strange story. I mean, what on earth is this doing in the Bible? What does it have to do with Christmas? This is not the kind of story you're, at least I hope not, that you're going to read to your children as part of your Advent rituals, right? It's strange to say the least, and yet here it is in the Bible. And when you read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, there her name is there along with Judah. So let's start making sense of this disturbing story in this way. First of all, it's amazing that Tamar's name is even in the genealogy of Jesus because in that culture, women's names were generally almost never included. Yet in Jesus' genealogy, besides Mary as mother, you actually see several women and not not the ones you'd expect like Sarah and Rebecca who are the matriarchs that are revered in the faith. The first woman singled out as the mother in Jesus' line of ancestors is Tamar. This twice-widowed Canaanite woman who pretended to be a prostitute so she could entrap her father-in-law into impregnating her. I mean, in most families, this is the great-aunt nobody talks about. So why is she included? Well, this text illustrates for us something that I think is really important as an overall point that can help us make sense of a lot of the really difficult stuff in the Bible. The Bible is not primarily a record of noble people that we are to emulate, rather a realistic depiction of raw, sinful humanity, hoping for a better life, needing to be saved by God. The Bible is unflinchingly honest. Uh, The moral of the story that we read is not to be like Tamar and Judah, and most of the things that the story depicts, rather that God's grace can break through and be experienced by anyone, even in the most difficult and unjust circumstances. No matter who you are or where you are in life, this story tells you that grace can break through into your life, just like it did for both of our fascinating, perplexing characters, Tamar and Judah. I mean, Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob also went by the name Israel, so you get the 12 tribes of Israel from his sons. He had just sold his brother Joseph into slavery and lied to his dad, saying that he was killed by a wild animal. And then Judah heads out of town to visit a friend. You actually wonder if Judah isn't, trying to get away from the family, just needing space from the guilt of what he did to his brother and father, not wanting to be found out, not wanting to be reminded or to face his dad uh, in, in the, with the horrible offense that he had committed. Have you ever felt ashamed from, a, from an impulsive, careless act that, that, that affected other people? Were you fearful of being found out ever in life? What choices did that cause you to make in that moment in life? While he's with his friend, Judah sees this hot Canaanite girl and decides to marry her. The problem is God has already commanded them not to marry the Canaanites, and it wasn't a racial issue at all. It was simply the Canaanites were not worshipers of God and had sacrificial religious practices, and as a whole their morals were something that would anger God and anger us, frankly. Yet Judah still goes ahead. Proverbs 28 tells us, whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. I mean, had Judah confessed to God and to his father the story of betraying his, his brother, the, the story would have likely ended there, but, but it did not, and instead he got married. It would seem Judah was on the path to distance himself from the truth. He chose to run and hide rather than to face the issues. He chose to handle things himself rather than let God direct his path. The story goes on. Judah got a wife from the Canaanites, so he also he arranged later in life for a wife, Tamar, from the Canaanites for his oldest son, Er, who we know really nothing about other than the fact that he was evil, mean, and cruel as a person. So think about what it must have been like For Tamar to be married to this evil, mean, cruel enough of a person that the text says God judged him and ended his life. Think of all the things the the people in the Bible did that God had such patience with. How much more evil error must have been for God to end his life? That left Tamar, a young childless widow, in a culture where women were treated like property. Their greatest value was childbearing. And because without a son for for, to provide for you, a woman likely would end up destitute and living on the streets. Therefore, in that culture, they had a law which later uh, got a Latin name to it called the Leveret Law. It means if a brother died, leaving his wife childless, the law said that one of the surviving brothers was required to marry her and father children who would be designated as heirs of the dead brother. This did a couple things. In a a culture that was highly about tribe and family and and legacy, it perpetuated the brother's name, but, but it also protected the widow, giving her guaranteed support. In fact... Support of the widow under that law was the sole responsibility of the father-in-law to the degree that if he didn't have other male children or other male children in his family were unwilling to fulfill the Leverett law, then the father-in-law was required to sleep with his daughter-in-law in in order to impregnate her and honor the law. Now, as off-putting, as revolting as that law seems to us, This was the culture, the assumed expectation from birth on to care for the legacy and the safety of the woman who wouldn't be able, like today, to just go out and get a job And who wouldn't likely ever be able to marry anybody else, that would be almost difficult, if not impossible, because there was already a stigma on having been married and still being childless in a culture that valued children and family above all else. Who would want to marry someone who had a 50-50 chance of being barren? This Leveret Law practice in their culture was as normal to them as turkey and mashed potatoes and pumpkin pie and football on Thanksgiving. So when Tamar's first husband dies, Judah gives to her his next son in short. He was wicked and evil, abusing and using her, not honoring her and not giving her the security and the blessing that the law Required him to give to her, so God's judgment once again came to bear, and he died as well. By verse eleven, Tamar has been twice widowed and still childless. Judah, Judah only has one son, Shelah, left. The biblical writer notes how Judah was actually fearful that his last son might also die, so he makes up an excuse that Shelah is not old enough. So he does something that was completely an affront in that culture. Judah sends Tamar home to her father's house to live, rejecting her, shaming her, and disgracing her before all of the people in the community. See, Judah blames Tamar for the evil and the death of his sons. She's the problem. She caused the pain. It's not his sons who he raised, allowing them to embrace the Canaanite gods, but it was her who is to blame. Judah is in such deep denial, which kind of happens, I think, to us when we have similar things that we're struggling with, fears and shame and guilt that we're struggling with, when we distance ourselves from God and others trying to avoid our guilt and shame. It might be hard, but just take a moment to try to feel what Tamar must have felt. Married to two evil men, husbands, and and then rejected and shamed and tainted as publicly and as strongly as a woman could ever be in that day. Has that ever happened to you? Even in a small measure, you've been treated with cruelty or accused of being the problem when you really weren't. You've been abused or misused or rejected or treated unjustly in some way. How can we identify with Tamar? And what would you do? Maybe what did you do? How, how did you try to fix the problem when you were in those circumstances? See, instead of letting God take her grief and discouragement, the pain of rejection and the the future that was lost to her and taken away from her, Tamar tries to handle it. Herself. And as the story goes on, the, you know, we read it earlier a few years past, Tamar realizes Judah has no intention of giving her marriage to the youngest son. And one day, shortly after Judah's wife died, she hears Judah's going to be coming by nearby. And so she takes off her widow's garments, dresses up as a prostitute, covers her face so she can disguise herself. And then she sits by the road waiting for her father in law, Judah, to come. And he does indeed come. I mean, yes, she's setting a trap, right? But as we saw in the reading, she also knows that she's risking her life. I mean, if she were caught, it would be a capital offense. She knows that. But she's cunningly exploiting the sexual double standard of her culture. Men could go to a prostitute with no no consequences, but if a woman got pregnant outside of marriage, she would be killed. Judah does indeed stop and proposition her. I mean, think about that. What does that tell you about what Tamar knew of the character of Judah? Judah. They work out payment, sex for a young goat, but he doesn't have a goat with him, so she asks for the guarantee of payment, the ring the wallet, the social security card, all that stuff. And as we read, Judah sends payment, can't find her, decides to save face and let it slide. And three months later, finds out she's pregnant and out of wedlock. And in an act of brazen hypocrisy, Judah orders her death. Now, technically that was a right thing to do according to the law and according to the law he was the one who was responsible for her so under that law he would have also had to have been the judge to make that determination according to the law of that day. So one can't help think Judah was probably thinking now I'm off the hook I don't have to give her my third son this is my way out and Again, we read the story. She's being slowly dragged out for execution. She stops the process. She sends the signal ring in the court to Judah and says, do you recognize these by the man who owns these that I'm pregnant? And and this is the mic drop moment in the courtroom, That, that moment when the attorney pulls out that piece of evidence and says, Judah, please identify whose these are. The choice is laid before Judah. He can run, he can hide, he can in his shame and guilt and once again ignoring the truth and distancing himself from his responsibility and family and letting yet another family member pay the price. But the big surprise of the story is what Judah actually does. When he's confronted with the signet ring and the cord and the staff, he doesn't say, that's not mine. Where did you get those from? He doesn't try to defend anything. He doesn't blame her, saying she's manipulating anything, trying to trick him or anything. Judah just simply says publicly, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her my son, Shelah. And this is the turning point of the story. In fact, it's the turning point of both Judah's life and Tamar's life. Judah recognizes his responsibility to provide for the widow and the poor. And as much as the lever at practice was about family and legacy, it was equally about providing for the widow and those impoverished, preventing them from falling through the cracks. And this is such a strong theme in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, to, to care for those who need help and don't let them fall through the cracks. Psalm 68 says it this way, God is a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy name dwelling. James 1 says, religion that is pure and undefiled, that's a pretty strong word, isn't it? Before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Paul writes to his protege Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, he says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Good job, Quest, and all the stuff you do for the coat drives and all those things. That is just so in line with who God is. But this is the guilt and the shame that Judah is facing and dealing with in that moment. His sin is not just a sin toward Tamar. His sin is a sin toward society not upholding his legal responsibility to care for others, and especially as a man of great wealth and prominence in that area, and even more so as one who was called by God to represent God so that others would know and follow God, Judah's example in the negative of what he's doing would damage greatly society and many people. Remember, for Tamar to have children by Judah was Tamar's legal right. If Judah was unable and unwilling to give his other sons to her in marriage, she could go to him. Though she was deceptive and and defiled uh, social norms through her publicly transactional seduction of how she did it, Judah's sin was still more consequential. And yet Judah recognizes Tamar is doing something profoundly important. She is even through her maybe sinful methods of getting there critiquing that social male-dominated self-righteous standard that led to oppression she is bringing to light judah's sin and being a part of that the text doesn't overlook or dismiss the sin of tamar but it does get at our tendency to go to the place of self-protection in life Today, we would say things like, oh, I've worked hard for what I have. It's my responsibility to protect all I have. I'm not responsible for the poor around me, the widows around me. They can care for themselves and make their own way. After all, I worked hard and made my own way. They can work hard and they can make their own way too. But but that so often ignores the social and economic and educational and relational and emotional advantages that we were born with or given because of the people in our lives. Our fear today may not be the same as Judah's superstitious fear of condemning Tamar because he thinks she caused the death of the sons. Our fear may be if we give too much to those who are in need, we don't have what we really want. Our fear today is more so a fear of scarcity. Whatever definition scarcity is for each of us, I think we have our different bar of what that means, but it's it's essentially we think we aren't going to have enough to have what we want in life. And it drives our decisions to not be as generous as God is calling us to be generous to, to the poor, to the orphans, to the widows. In the Bible, all sin is terrible and separates us from God. Sin damages relationships with others. It damages our own health. But the action of God towards self-righteous greed that results in the oppression of widows and poor is is something that seems to be uh, quicker to bring consequences to bear from God. Social injustice deeply grieves God's heart, and it leads him to action more quickly, it seems like. So while that social justice, generosity, confrontation of self-righteousness, it's a prominent truth in the Scripture, I want to end our camping there right now because there's, there's some other personal and more profound things, I think, even for each of us to grapple with in both Tamar and Judah. Think about how hard it must have been for Tamar to carry hope through this time. I'm sure there were many desperate nights crying herself to sleep, and both in her marriages to the evil abusive sons, and now as a rejected widow, blamed for what she was not responsible for. And yet there was enough motivation, whether faith, whether you'd call it hope, maybe you just call it desperation in her, to go so far as to use deception, to secure her future. And the beauty of that is not how she went about it. The beauty of that is how God responds to her desperate hope. He sees her hope and answers the hope by giving her not just one son, but two sons. On top of that, God restored relationships that created a secure, safe future for her she actually names one of her one of her children Perez which means breakthrough or breakout. out i love how god just comes into desperate situations just breaks out so often and does stuff we we began this year feeling like the theme for this year was, was breakthrough, like God was saying this is a year that we were supposed to pray for breakthrough and focus on that. And some of you have individually experienced breakthroughs in your finances or relationships or health. As a church, we've seen breakthroughs in some areas. Things are headed in the right direction. We haven't experienced all the breakthrough by any stretch of the imagination we hope for. But and others of you have had difficult things come to pass this year. And you're in desperate need of a breakthrough. I think we're all living constantly in this place of longing for more, whatever that more is. And the lesson of this text speaks to this longing by first letting us know circumstances happen and we make choices. Those circumstances can, can lead to destruction or those choices can lead to destruction and disillusionment or they can lead to restoration and a fulfilling life. And that the second kind of big overall lesson in this is, is restoration and fulfillment come through choosing God, through choosing hope. See, we see through this incredibly flawed lineage of Abraham all the way to Jesus, we see God as the one who ultimately carries hope for all of mankind, bringing Jesus for the redemption of the world. God carries us. God carries hope. Let's keep choosing him. But, but that still leads me to a more practical question that I, at least I ask. How do we carry hope? I was so struck in reading this over and over again by Judah's response. Judah, I think, when confronted, shows us a powerful truth of being a carrier of hope. Carrying hope means we live in vulnerability and repentance rather than in self-protection. See, he repented publicly and clearly for his sin and made things right with Tamar and his children through her. We do so many things in life, don't we, to try to realize hope for our lives? But so many of those things take us to this place of living in self-protection, trying to protect what we want, what we need, and holding things tight rather than living in this vulnerable repentance and this vulnerable obedience of risking even when we don't see the end in sight. See, Judah's recognition and repentance from his sin was a turning point that brought freedom and life to both Tamar and his own life. I mean, in Israelite history, Judah would no longer be primarily remembered for selling his brother into slavery and for his sin against Tamar or for any of the other many evil deeds. You can read his story. He did a lot of bad things. But Judah went on to be known as the great one through whom the kings of Israel would come, David, Solomon, and so many others. We see in the lineage of Jesus from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah on that Judah was Jacob's fourth son from his first wife who was his least favorite wife. And he was chosen to be the son from whom the lineage of leadership would come. Jacob, at the end of his life, didn't choose Joseph, the son he loved the most, his favorite, from his favorite wife, Rachel. Instead, God, through Jacob, promised in Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. I mean, Judah, a man who had sinned grievously by instigating the sale of his brother into slavery, raised extremely wicked sons, a terrible dad, and wickedly failed to provide a husband and heir for his daughter-in-law, breaching all the laws and the respectability of the day. But Judah responded to the Spirit of God, and he confessed his evil actions. And his, his, his repentance later shows this tremendous fruit in his life we see how Judah became a different man. Years later, as he went with his brothers to Egypt during a time of famine and unknowing, unknowingly stood before Joseph, the brother he would betrayed and sold into slavery. When Joseph decides to test the hearts of his brothers by threatening to hold the youngest son as a slave and maybe even put him to death, Judah pipes up and says, take me as a slave. Take my life, not the boy's life. And God doesn't diminish the huge role Joseph played in saving the lineage by faithfully uh, living in a pagan culture and bringing a great deliverance, but we see God choose Judah instead to accentuate how God honors a repentant heart and thereby we see how God chooses all of us with all of our flaws and our failures because God carries hope for us. He's that good. He's that powerful. And Judah's repentance transformed Tamar's life as well. I heard, I've heard a bunch of conversations recently uh, from people asking questions like, "Can can God work through me to, to do something beautiful and powerful uh, with how flawed I am, how much I've failed?" Can God use me to pray and, and speak and care for others in such a way that they encounter God and, and find freedom or healing or wisdom or whatever they need? And, and this, this story says the answer to those questions are a resounding yes If God is willing to embrace Judah and Tamar in his lineage and and hundreds of years later inspire Matthew, who culturally would not have included them to still include them, if God is that intentional, then yes, even if you've acted like a pagan, unbelieving Canaanite, even if you have been devalued through the oppression of, of people who should have been representatives of God, making you have this beat down, I can't do anything, I'm not good enough for God. If you've had religious people tell you that, God is saying to you, yes, I want you, yes, I want I want to fulfill your hope. Yes, I want to give you, your, give you strength. Yes, I want to work through you to touch other peoples, for you to be a carrier of hope that you can spread that to other people. Because God carries our hope for us, and he promises to carry that until it's complete in us. See, what this story shows us is that no matter no matter who you are or whether you think you are good and righteous or whether you think you are the dregs of the earth, you need the grace of God to break into your life, to break through in your life, to humble you and rescue you even from your own self-righteousness. Like Judah, we tend to live life blaming rather than being vulnerable too often owning our junk, don't we? I mean, Judah blamed Tamar because he couldn't admit that he had failed as a father with his first two sons. He blamed her because he was angry with himself at how he had betrayed his own father, selling his brother into slavery and then lying about it. He was weak and he didn't want to be weak. None of us want to be weak. And because of that and other stuff, Judah lived as an angry, self-protective man and it bled out all around him on his kids and other people. Isn't that what happens in our own lives all too often? Things build up. We get so much anger because of being hurt, because of injustice, because of difficulty. So much anger at ourselves because we've failed, because we've been weak, because we've sinned, because we haven't loved like we wanted to love or done things like we wanted to love. And the only way we can cope with that is to make other people the enemy. See, Judah, in the moment he was confronted with the evidence, his signet, cord and staff, he could have lied. He could have lied. He could have come up with a story. He was a prominent, powerful, enough man. He could have come up with a story to protect his own reputation and and cover up the deed. But this time, instead of costing him a brother and the stress of hiding a lie from his dad, it would have cost him his own children being executed in the womb of Tamar. Judah comes to a breaking point. He can no longer hide his guilt. And buried guilt does that in our lives. It eventually leads all of us to a breaking point as the bitterness continues to disrupt our own health and our own relationships and our own lives. And and, and as as Judah is publicly confronted with the staff and singing, and chords, for the first time, Judah is moved past the anger to seeing himself for who he really is. And that's what leads to the miracle of this story. I mean, have you ever been confronted with something you did wrong? How did it make you feel? Have you ever been publicly rebuked and corrected for something you did wrong? And how did you respond to that? For years, Judah had run away from the truth, defended himself and his family. He ran away from the truth and from God into the arms of pagan Canaanites. But God is so merciful that even through this horrible tragedy and Judah running away from him, God is still pursuing Judah. And this time, this time, Judah humbles himself. And it changes the entire course of his life in history. You see, in Judah's repentance, he begins at that moment to carry hope. Instead of carrying anger and disappointment with himself and, and secrets that he doesn't want to let out, he releases all of that and he carries hope. Hope Only when he repented and reconnected to God's love and purpose in his life, only when he owned the responsibility God had given him, did he begin to carry hope instead of anger and fear and bitterness and secrets and blame. See, carrying hope? It's carrying the hope of grace. The hope of God breaking into our reality and changing things. The hope of God's return into our reality. See, Christmas reminds us God came once into our reality in a very physical way. So his promise of coming again, to finish setting all things right in this broken world, to making all things right, that promise is sure. Sure. Eventually, God is sure to come regardless of whether you are Tamar in life or whether you are Judah because we know He will show up. It allows us to rest in carrying the hope that He carries for us. So where are you today? Are you carrying anger? Are you carrying disappointment with yourself or with others or are you carrying secrets? See, only in humble vulnerability and repenting only in owning our own stuff instead of blaming, can we trade the weight of that anger and that disappointment and begin to carry hope and see hope in our lives? As we enter the holidays, maybe this message speaks to you in relation to one of your family members or one of your close friends who you're going to spend time with who has wronged you. Where, Where do you need to learn to carry hope in that relationship instead of carrying the bitterness and the anger and the distance around? How can you be vulnerable to allow God's grace to break into your life and into the life of those you are blaming and you're angry with this season so that God can make you a carrier of hope for yourself and for everyone around you? Let me just pray a blessing on you as we go. Lord, I pray. That you would help us all just become more aware. Help us to get past the anger, the blame, the frustration that is, Lord, too often part of our life to see you and to receive and trade our junk for your hope. And Lord, I pray that as we go out today that you would give each and every one of us today, this week, this month, the opportunity to be Hope carriers that we get to participate with you in bringing hope to people who don't have hope and helping bringing healing to people who need healing and helping bring faith in how much you love people to people who don't believe you love them at all. Would you help us to see those opportunities this week and enjoy being a part of the amazing good that you call us to be a part of doing with you as, as carriers of hope. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at GoToQuest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.